Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Okay, well, thank you all for coming today. I'm excited to see your faces and go through questions. So today, so this is our, both our February um, Patreon, Patreon question Q&A, um, and also our live event for this quarter. Um, um, we've already planned our next live event um, for the next quarter. It's at the in, in end of May, I believe. Um, Amber, is that correct? Sorry. Um, yeah, let me just flip through here. Um, we have it down for, I think we didn't say, didn't we say May 27th? Yeah, I think it was that last Saturday. And, yeah, so yeah. sort of a, a just before the summer you know, last hurrah kind of thing, live event. I love it that I never have any idea when anything is happening. And but I yeah, just show do up. have a calendar you can look yeah. at. <laughs> I, but, thank God. And thank God for it. But if people have suggestions for themes, we're trying to keep them more themed. Um, if you have a suggestion for a theme you want to focus in on, you know, do let us know either email or in the discord or um, things like that. And trying to think of other housekeeping real quick. Um, you see that we've been trying to do more Substack podcast crossover companion stuff. Um, so hopefully you're enjoying those. And we have a lot of upcoming things in the works for this year. We're trying to make 2023, trying to get out some other types of content, um, maybe more object biographies, shorter little um, posts and here and there. You'll be hearing probably more from Amber, all three of us, getting back to the book club that I think everyone really liked um so we have some things in the work so stay tuned for some of those um we're pulling Lexi into some things too so because Lexi's now here in LA so she's been wrapped up into some stuff um so yeah so super exciting but for this uh live event we're doing all about gods and goddesses all things religion um does anyone want to start with their question I have some pulled from the discord from that people sent in um, as they weren't able to attend, feel free to pop your question into the chat and I can read it out loud, but any um, brave beginners, anyone? Okay, I can read one, get us started. I'll be, uh, I was gonna say, I'll, I'll be brave, go I'll be it. brave. Um, so uh, I'm not gonna read from my Discord post, but I can- I have your- your question up and I one I want to say it's cool so you said you volunteer at the Penn Museum which is really cool and yeah. you know I'm from Philadelphia so I love the Penn Museum but yes continue yeah, yeah I love it I love it too um and my cat Bassett is going to make an appearance oh, momentarily oh, there you go. <laughs> uh so um one of my favorite things to talk about are the canopic jars because they're, you know, they're cute, adorable. Kids like to, you know, look, look inside of them. They see the stickers, you know, what they, you know, it's protective and stuff like that. And I've always wanted to know, like, why did they choose those specific, like, animals to represent, you know, those different sons of Horus? And I do have my own personal non-scientific, but I do definitely enjoy sharing. So I'm happy to share if you guys, if you wish. Um, okay, so I always start with Kibisenu S and then I ask them to try to say- Oh, thank God that. you're going in order and you're saying who they are. Cause I'm like, 
I'm like, wait, which, you know, and, and, and I remember the, you know, Quebec Senouf, okay, is the hawk-headed one, but what, what's his organ? Uh, intestines. Okay, see, I don't remember these things. I like um, your theory, though. Well, my thought is because Egyptians noticed their environment is that they noticed that when, you know, hawks and stuff like that were eating, you know, stuff like that, they were pulling it out. It looked like they were pulling out like intestines mm -hmm. with right. and stuff like that. And much like how, you know, Anubis is a jackal because they, you know, it used to dig up the bodies. Why not have, you know, the animal that goes after what looks like the intestines to be the protector of the intestines? Right. Um, so when, that's, whenever I teach, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I believe me. I, I have. To, I say this so frequently. I can stop and continue and go as needed. I began. I began my introductory classes, especially my, my religion class, with the geography of Egypt, as well as the bestiary, all of the animals that appear in nature, but as well how are they transferred over into divine form. And I bring up Anubis, Wapwawit, uh, all the time. It's like, okay, you know, Aunt Betty just died. If you're a farmer, you're not going to be able to afford an official tomb, so you're going to dig a shallow grave. Well, come nightfall, Aunt Betty's going to draw the attention of these jackals out in the desert. And so if any Egyptian sees them, you know, it's like, oh, we just buried Aunt Betty, but then here comes this jackal. They're interpreting this as the jackal is going to lead them into the afterlife, when in fact, it's rather gruesome. It's more gruesome than that. Yeah. Who am I forgetting? Quebec Senuef, Duamutef, Imseti. Who's Imseti? Uh, happy. happy, happy, oh, happy, happy. Oh, duh. Yeah. Um, so, happy's the lungs, right? And said yes. the liver. Um, Duamutef then has to be the stomach. Yeah, that is correct. Okay. So, Imseti is human, and my joke answer is because they drank a lot of beer, and so the liver needed as much protection as possible. <laughs> but it's more, my more thought is just the color of the liver and the fact that it looks like the, you know, shape for the hieroglyph for flesh. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's maybe that's where that association came in. Uh, then I go for happy, which is, like, as you know, to the baboon and for the lungs. And I love to do this one, especially because it's on the third floor at, in the Egyptian exhibit at Penn Museum. So mm -hmm. they've just taken down the curtains. It echoes beautifully. But because Egyptians noticed that in the morning, baboons would would greet the rising sun and go <laughs> like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to make that much noise, you have to have really strong lungs. I don't know if that's right, but that's my thought. I don't know if they recognize any sort of connection with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Duomotep is a jackal because they can eat pretty much anything. And to do that, you have to have a strong stomach. That's, but... But other than my fancies and my imagination, do we have any actual ideas to what inspired each animal? Yeah, I, I've always, you know, we always say that the Egyptians are very skilled at taking the thing that's the most dangerous and turning it into a protector, like the hippo that snatches the children from the riverbanks and making that into a pregnant female hippo. And then she's all of a sudden a protector of mm -hmm. against all kinds of childhood diseases and, and infant mortality and death and childbirth and all of these things, which is really extraordinary. Um, you take what is frightening and you turn it in, in your favor. Um, I like your, I like your understanding of how these different animals are working uh, and how they connect with these different organs. And Jordan, am I right that the animals don't come in as as representative of the four signs of Horus until rather late. Yeah, it was in yeah. the middle kingdom. kingdom. Middle, yeah. ki oh, middle kingdom. Yeah. 
Yeah. So and, and what's also interesting is they're related to the cardinal directions as well. Right. So it's like, I don't know, like a humoral early, like, I don't know. Like what are the directions? Sense. How so, do they work? Imseti is south, Duamutaf mm-hmm. is east, Hafi is north, and Chabusenuef is west. And each one of those also have a protective protective goddess. Yes. Well. So I Nep- feel like it's this Isis. Yeah, an Isis Nep- mm-hmm. Nepsis and circuit. Okay. Yeah. yeah, which you see, of course, because the, and so for all of this, have you tried, Marissa, looking at chapter 151 of the Book of the Dead? No. So th- this chapter is actually laid out in a table, and and it has a really good representation in the burial chamber of the tomb of Senefer, TT96. And there's a really good book by Barbara Luscher. It's in German, but it's wonderful. And, and it'll lead you through all the different elements of that that book and and it is according to the cardinal directions and each coffin has um these elements too not all four goddesses are on it but nephthys and isis are there and isis is always at the feet and nephthys is always at the head and then the four sons of horus are distributed on the sides right according to the the way it's supposed to be for north south east and west i suppose mm. so that's another way of of thinking about it in terms of directions maybe um, you, you would want Duamut have to maybe be west as the jackal of the desert, but the eastern desert could work too. I don't know. Um, yeah. I think I think most people agree with you that they're connected to some type of the, what the animals do in in nature. Um, so I think that's I think you're on to something because I'm just doing a quick search around. That's most of the Egyptologist opinion as well. So. I'm, I'm kind of working on a similar thing um, uh, regarding cats, believe it or mm-hmm. not. Um, a kitten can become sexually mature enough to give birth or to get pregnant when she's about six to 10 months old. Crazy. And she goes into heat or in estrus uh, anywhere from uh, September through possibly even February. And she can mate with more than one male and still give a birth to a litter of kittens with more than one father. And so the idea of you know, fecundity, sexuality, but then once those kittens pop out, she's also very nurturing and loving and very defensive. So I think those, those tap into kind of the zoological behavior that you're looking at, Marissa. Yeah, totally agree. And also I think what would be interesting to look into more, and I, I know I can think of a graduate student at UChicago actually, who's looking more into this, but like associations between organs and certain ideas um, so like if Hoppy being a baboon associated with Thoth and, you know, the moon and Thoth and all these other attestations, seeing those type of connections too, and seeing if they had looking even in like the medical texts or in coffin texts or things like this too, and seeing what connections or ideas they had about certain organs and their connection to. So you say that, and I think of Happy. Mm-hmm. Not, not you know the baboon um, for for you know that we're talking about, but happy that annual inundation yeah. and how sometimes you can actually see him doing the semitali, which, if I'm not mistaken, is actually a set of lungs with the two plants. Mm-hmm. You're right, yeah, right around right. it. Mm-hmm. So here we've got another baboon associated with lungs. Yeah, so, I mean, is as part of the cemetery. So. And I'm sure Egyptians like wanted you to have all these connotations and connections between all these things, you know. Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. Thank you. 
good good question um although although i didn't catch that book that you mentioned Kara, the one that was in oh yeah in, uh, um, Bishon, so maybe if somebody finds it it's barbara i think it's barbara lusher l-u umlaut s-c-h-e-r um and i think it's totenbuch spruch 151 i think i think um and they'll you'll get it at the pen library they'll have it there Okay, so I'll do a question from that was submitted earlier. Okay, so this one's a little long, so hang with me. Um, I'm going to read it out loud. This is from a fellow Patreon patron named Matt. Um, okay, so if the Festival of Min was an enthronement ceremony of Pharaoh celebrating his and Min's maintenance of fertility, we're back on fertility, how important was this festival in the hierarchy of other ceremonies the king participated in, like the opet? And do the Flinders Petrie Min torsos, the infamous ones that we, we think of, um, in one's face per se at the Ashmolean, imply the Min festival was an important part of royal ideology from the earliest times? Yes. Um, were female pharaohs given the Min treatment or did other ceremonies like Bast and Hathor take, other deities like Bast and Hathor take prominence? And then we have a part two. Um, so ponder on that. And then men's black skin and erection are usually interpreted within the context of fertility, black soil skin. Um, but is there a genital intimidation angle? Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so genital intimidation. So they reference a relief from Northwest Asia that has a man facing forward flanked by two leopards. And the man is holding his erection um, and interpret one of the interpretations of this relief argues that the human whips out his phallus to stop the attack of the leopards, I guess, in a way of they're struck dumb or in all or something in the sense. And the, the human is facing the viewer and is in more three-dimensional relief while the leopard's in two-dimensional. So it also the viewer is also kind of struck dumb by this, this action. I'm sure many pause a second or two before entering the Ashmolean min torsos, even though they have missing phalluses. The festival of men clearly celebrates male fertility, but does it also threaten male power? Hmm. Okay, well, I'll start. So we'll, and then I'll just say we can break this down. So first, yeah. festival of men, um, yeah. everyone on the same page, you know, what was it? What connection did it have to the king? Um, and well, you answer that I, one because you're you're living with somebody who does nothing else. I was going to say, I actually asked my partner about this because I was like, I don't really know like much about it. And so, yeah, it's one of these very important festivals of kingly renewal, um, very much linked to his fertility up there with, yeah, the Opet Festival, like, beautiful piece of the valley and things like this. I don't know how it would rank in importance. I think they would all be viewed as equally important as part of the, you know, calendar of festivals that happen yearly and further on I would say yes those early Min statues from that are in the Ashmolean now very much point that point to the fact that these are very early uh festivals of kingship from the pre-dynastic on and I don't know about yeah. parents, so. um there it's interesting that I mean you see men on Hatshepsut's red chapel I believe so and it was part yeah. of you see an almond men type yeah. type thing. Yeah, absolutely. But her association with that kind of sexuality is absolutely played down. And you see her association with, in some ways, more of a Hathoric kind of thing, or really mm -hmm. they make use of almond without the men. And even her name 
has the appended Henemet and, and Amen. So she mm -hmm. is united with Amen. And, and that's a perfect thing for her. It's, it's like uh, abstract. It's a thought rather than an actual bodily element. And so she can be united with him, like a mind meld united rather than sexually united. Um, she's making choices. Yeah. Yeah. She's making very particular choices. Whereas the, yeah, the sexual act created her and you see that very clearly, or you read about it very clearly in, in her birth scenes from Dira Bahri, but um, she doesn't associate with it as explicitly. Nor does Cleopatra who also ruled for a long period of time. And then our other female Kings, you don't, you don't have as much um, information, but you know, some things that I was thinking of first for the, the um, who asked this? The person? Um, Matt. Matt. So first, Matt, it's it's like a huge stretch of time, right? And whenever we're answering something about religion, we have to be careful. Um, and, the, and you know, Egyptologists are always cautioning you. You have to be careful. You can't conflate times. And that's true. Um, but you, we're talking about a God who's whose length of, of existence in Egypt and importance is extraordinarily long from and the very ritual, beginnings. Go and ahead. ritual and religion tend to be something that is purposefully conserved longer yes. than other things. So you can maybe make these. You, you probably could, because he's there at the very beginning. Yeah. He's there at the very beginning and he's there all the way up until the, the bitter end, right? So, but then how much does the ritual and associated belief system stay the same? We can't really know. Um, what it was like at the beginning, is it like that towards the end? I mean, so all those cautions in mind, the idea that, that men, that at the very beginning, that he's, it's seemingly shown to everyone this, this incredibly vulnerable moment of his erect phallus coming forth from, from his gown. And, and yes, in the Ashmolean, those statues, the penis is missing, but you have to remember, these are the first colossal statues in all of human history. And they show a God jacking off. I tried to say it too fast. Um, so this, this masturbating God is the first colossal in all of human history. And a colossal statue is, is by its very size and nature more inclusive rather than exclusive, though one can imagine I have to imagine that this kind of statue was kept inside of a gated place, a walled place, yeah. protected in some way from the profane world, right? Um, because, so I'm going to kind of touch on this idea of the, what was it, genital intimidation. I like this. Um, because when when this member peeks forth, um, as so so we might say, um, it's happening in his home space, in his abode, in his most sacred and private of chambers. Mm -hmm. And it's something that not everyone gets to see. And that if you encounter it in a temple space, in a relief or in a statue, it's probably in a place that's, that's more shut off from the rest of, of the matting crowds and not something that, that the uninitiated would get to see. And so those who did see it, were prepared. Um, and I think that it would support their patriarchal control over this religious and political system. And in my opinion, it, it supports that, that, that patriarchal system. So Jordan, what are you thinking? I'll cough while you um, answer. I'm thinking too of the fact that you never see the king with an erect phallus. It's the gods only are allowed to have those shown. You never see the king. 
it's maybe hinted at or something like this, depending on their dress, but you, the king's never shown nude. Um, the only other people that are shown nude are very lower classes, and they also can have flaccid um, genitalia in those scenes. So the gods are the only ones allowed to show this power, if we're thinking of it as you know masculine power and you're intimidating. Um, that's like the one thing I can think of. And I relate it also to female genitalia in, in the, the myth of the heavenly cow where you they flash raw to make him smile to, um, so maybe not intimidation, but just like shock <laughs> in a, both a positive and intimidating way. But I saw um, Brian's message in the chat that Oros Machik has written on that. So I haven't read that. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the reliefs are just wonderful. So if you're, mm -hmm. if you're looking at, and I'm trying to think like really a lot of the Ptolemaic temples will show this erect phallus scene. Um, and you might see the King then embracing the God while his penis is, is coming out of the, of his, his garment. And the King's got to kind of lean away. And, and it's, it's really cute that, you know, they, they, the way the artisan has to deal with that is, entertaining and yet at the same time if the king is embracing he is in the embrace of this god whose sexual ability can create himself and create the whole world then the king is imbued with that power through that embrace and then every ritual he does before the king sorry before the god min in whatever form that is amen min or another form of min min of koptos is meant to then pull that that power into egypt and you could, you know, you can keep going with this masculine idea of fecundity geographically. And Brian was saying that he likes to think of geography for all of these things. Hoppy's already been mentioned in terms of the flood. And if you think of the, the seasonal yearly flood as a, a min-like efflux, mm -hmm. a, a giant orgasm, if you will, and the Egyptians are very clear about these such things in their texts, then you, you see that this is absolutely necessary to maintain this, this physical prowess. And that's why you see, there's one scene, it's very common of the, of the king holding a hoe, a very sharp instrument to stick into the ground. And there's Min with, with his freak flag flying and the hoe is right there in front of it. And you're like, ah, no, be careful, right? But the two things are inextricably linked. The semen flowing forth is, is what is creating the, the seeds and the new life and the mm -hmm. hoeing that the king is doing is kind of vaginal. It's kind of creating the channel mm -hmm. to, put, to put that thing in there. Is that an emasculation? I mean, in, in a way it is, but it's a, it's a wonderful way of thinking of how you contain and catch this sacred seed um, when it appears. So, yeah. yeah. There's so many um, connotations. I think the Egyptians were referencing, but yeah, I would, I would, I would say definitely like masculine power mm -hmm. and fertility through these these references. And and again, for, so one last thing: when you think, oh, is this emasculating? You know, every man has a hand, and every hand is a female. It's Jaret in in the name, and so every human being has masculine elements and female elements. The Egyptians would have understood that, and in the heart, interesting, has a masculine word and a feminine word. We can mess with that later. Why there's the ib that's masculine and the hati that's feminine. But, but this, this idea that a man would have feminine parts or that a king would use the hoe to create a channel, 
I don't think these things necessarily emasculate, but rather empower. And I don't, I think too, we have to remember like maybe today, if someone ripped out their erect penis, people might laugh, <laughs> people would be shocked or have all these maybe connotations. But I don't think we can't necessarily ascribe that to the Egyptians and it's a God. So, you know, and that's how the God is represented and you you need these things for like fecundity and for everything to be you know going on as right so um the 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 comparison i would make is growing up roman catholic when they actually mm -hmm. hold up the host that now has jesus in it that moment where somehow a a spirit has gone into bread this moment of revealing the Mm -hmm. thing that keeps us all alive fed housed clothed is the most sacred mystery of new life that the egyptians could possibly work with and so to show that and to show it so literally and yet have all of the mysteries there surrounding it is um is it seems on its face to be very base and physically presented but it's a a quite elegant theology simultaneously Mm -hmm. yeah good okay anyone else want to go next for a question i have a question (laughs) so we have so much like physical evidence of how religion operated like for the elites, but I'm always curious about like, what was religious life for everyday people? Like, did they have little, like little shrines in their homes? Do we have any evidence for that? Like what would, how, and how would they engage with the religion of the elites? And like what, yeah, basically what do we have on that? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a great question. Um, and Jordan, I'll let you jump in. But, you know, people always say, well, you have to look to Daryl Medina and Daryl Medina has these household shrines and ancestor busts and the lit clos, the French word for the enclosed bed, which they used to think was a bed, but is no bed. It's like it's it's some sort of an altar type space. And they probably would have put things in there to worship um, little icons and, and things like that. And Daryl Medina is indeed useful, but Daryl Medina is a place for artisans who were in daily contact with the highest of elites, not just of Thebes, but of Memphis, Heliopolis, the whole show. You're Mm -hmm. talking to the vizier. You may even get a glimpse of the king from time to time. I mean, these people were put into this desert, into this artificial manufactured domestic space to which water had to be hand carried for a reason. They were were cut off and, and put into a special space. So well, Dear Medina preserves all kinds of things and, and you can talk about a different kind of, of religion um, with little best figurines and tawarets and, and images of the mother and baby and, and the convolvus leaves and all kinds of things. You know, there's all kinds of things you can talk about. Um, it's much more than that because we don't have most of the burials preserved in museums and in archaeological reports the way that we do for the for the poor like we do for the elites which is incredibly frustrating so where is religion preserved for us for egyptology it's mainly through the dead and the temple so the temple is one thing it's built on a high place right and so it's preserved in that way because it's built in this place that's not repeatedly flooded though some are and but the dead are put into a place that that doesn't touch water ideally right And so you get this preservation of books of the dead and other underworld books and coffins and statues and all kinds of things. And I'll just give you one example from my own research, which is in um, 
and it, this is not my publication, but it's a publication by the Dutch, by Martin Raven, R-A-V-E-N. And it's the tomb of Eu Rudef. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful volume. And, and maybe Jordan, um, um, Amber can find it in the Google books. And in this tomb, it's a Ramesa tomb of a high elite at Saqqara, super nice, but it's reused in the third intermediate period. And one of the chambers in this tomb is filled with bodies that are all in a fetal position without any coffins and wrapped in just simple textiles like a palm rib mat, you know, a palm tree's ribs. And you put that together in some sort of textile and wrap them up. And they're not laid out flat. They don't have coffins. Um, and, and you realize when you, and, and in another room next door, there were these really shitty coffins um, made of as many as a hundred pieces of wood, just cobbled together. They have, one of them has nonsense hieroglyphs on it. Um, and I might even have that book. I should never try to look for books while I'm talking. But um, so you have this one tomb reused with in very different methods of burying the dead. And they're parallel methods, one for the poor who can't afford even a coffin, right? And that's probably 90, 95% of ancient Egyptians. And then those who could barely afford a coffin during a time of great deprivation at the end of the Bronze Age, um, into the Bronze Age collapse. And, and you wonder then, did they have different belief systems? How did this kind of thing work? And this is, this is work that's very hard to do because we have so much cognitive material preserved in writing from the wealthy elites and, very, and nothing from the poor, right? You get some, and I, I found the book, you get some nonsense hieroglyphs like, um, and it's on this coffin. I can't show you the nonsense hieroglyphs right now, but I could find them in the book. Um, and then what, so what are the different, belief systems, how does something like this work? And this kind of work is, is being begun. I would just say another caution. There are books out there that say things like religion of the ancient Egyptian poor or burial methods of the poor. Wolfram Gretzky is great in this respect, um, looking at the non-elite burials. I will say, however, that if it's materialized, if it's in some way that is preserved to us, it's almost certainly not poor. It's, it, it, it's probably a semi-elite, not, not always, but often. And so often if we see something that's of lower quality, we're like, oh, that's a poor person. If they had a coffin, they're by no means poor. Um, the poor are people who are coffinless, mummification-less. People who go into the afterlife and prepare their loved ones for death knowing that their bodies will not be preserved the way the rich person's body is preserved and that they don't have a container around them. And I, I talk more about this in my book, um, Coffin Commerce, which is was recently published with Cambridge University Press, little tiny book, um, 30,000 words. They kept making me chop shit out. It was horrible. But, um, but in there, I'm like, what kind of a world is it where you have this kind of social separator where mm -hmm. some people get to literally live forever and other people are like, you're going to rot. Ha ha. What, I mean, we're living in that world now, arguably, but like, you know, some people get to be beautiful and young forever. And other people are like working till they die an early death in the United States too. So, you know, there's, um, there's a lot more that I could say about this. I do look at funerary arts from a Marxist perspective. It's my preferred angle. I love that social lens. It, it helps me understand it better than anything else. Um, but 
there's so much that one could do with these things. And, you know, and and then just one little other example, and then I'll let Jordan um, jump in and Amber, if she has anything, but like, you know, the ancient Egyptians by the end, we can see, and by the end, I mean like by new kingdom, but then on into late period in Greco-Roman, they created these temple systems where you have your temple where only the initiated or the special or the elite get to go inside and everyone else, you go around the back. And we know what that means in the United States when you say go around the back, right? Um, servants entrance and slave persons entrance, um, extraordinary social separation. And the ancient Egyptians had that baked into their religious system. So when I read a book like Jan Osman's whatever, it's all elite based. And I start getting angry and writing in the margins, but that's helpful to me to, um, to try to take a different perspective. But then what you fill it with, with that vacuum of emptiness is really, really hard. And, and there I would go to things like what Marissa was thinking about, like the behaviors of animals, the rising and setting of the sun, the river, the, the things that will never go away. The idea that a person is buried in a fetal position is, is a natural thing. They're returning to birth, right. Um, in their death and, and all of those things are there. So there, there are, there's so much more that Egyptology can do and hasn't done yet because we have this embarrassment of riches that we're processing and working with, and there's still texts that need to be translated. And so until, until then let's, let's see, but I think people are starting to work on such things. And I think also connecting to, to active and living African traditions and animist African traditions, I think is very helpful even if those traditions are farther from Egypt than you would like, I think they could be useful for understanding some of these, these um, ideas. So those are just some, some thoughts. I'm going to let Jordan jump in and I'm going to grab a cough drop. I'll be right back. I think Kara brought up a lot of good points. I was thinking of some examples that I could think of off the top of my head. And I think from um, recent work at Amarna in the, of Workman's Cemetery, of people who we, you know, we have evidence were kind of backbroken and injured and not so healthy and kind of used as laborers, but we have where they're buried in graves still, um, you know, their heads pointing to the West, like there's certain um, ideas, ideological ideas that I feel like we can track across all status. Um, of being, you have to be buried. Your body ha- ideally is preserved in some way. Um, the West being the land of the dead, like certain ideas like this that you can see. Um, so I think with the Amarna Workman's Cemetery, we could maybe get more idea of some ideas. But again, you could argue, well, they're only getting buried because they're at Amarna and it's a special place and they're special workmen. I'm also thinking of non um more provincial cultic sites that have like early on, like Tel Farka and stuff, we have these very irregular shaped quote unquote, like temples or cultic spaces where we have a lot of like votive offerings. And so I think maybe there you could see a more common practice um, with the votives not being expensive. If we couldn't use like a capitalist term of something that, you know, everyday people could interact with. We do have, shrines and households again all from a lead context but maybe presumably this is you know they're not going to church every day every things presumably are happening in the house um 
I think too of some of the letters to the dead we get an interesting idea of maybe ideas of the afterlife and ghosts and hauntings and things like that and I always come back to because I've struggled with this in my own work as well of really only talking about the elites or we have depictions of lower status people in in elite tomb scenes but you know this is from the elite idea of them not their own expression but I always come back to the fact that the lower status people are still maybe involved in the production of some of these ideological goods. So they're still involved in, you know, you're seeing maybe I'm producing the cloth that I'm not ever going to be able to wear because I can't afford that really nice linen, but I'm a slave in a temple context and I'm farming the fields and I'm seeing this really nice linen being produced, but it's like never for my consumption. But you're probably still, since you're in this culture, still in this cloth culture, in this state, you're still going to acknowledge that, oh, that really fine linen, it's the really nice stuff. And you, you're still part of this idea of, oh, you're, you know, I, I don't think it's as separate as maybe it is. You know, there's probably some, you know, what the elites are getting and the kings, you maybe can see his pyramid or something like this. So you're still a part of those ideological ideas and the king is a god in a sense too right and you're doing things for him um maybe yeah. stuff we'll get some more evidence but but, but i mean in the end you know the the evocative image of the pyramid works a colossal statue of ramses ii is always going to be there on the landscape mm-hmm. um if you're a poor person and there's some sort of a temple nearby um then, then you're going to be pulled into this hierarchy of religion in some way, shape, or form, such that even if you're sent around back, you're going to be sent around back to an, a statue of the king. And then you might leave your little clay ear to have the, mm-hmm. your prayer heard, but you're still there in a hierarchical space looking, you know, making eyeline higher up with the king. So I'm not going to tell you that poor people had a completely separate but parallel religious experience, wholly divided by power. Indeed, I feel that 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 these temples were there to reify this political power. This was a theocracy, and and these things were were imposed. Now, that's not, you know, some people have gotten really upset with the good king saying you're taking down the Egyptian gods and goddesses. By no means um, is that my intent. My intent is to show the manipulation of human beings of these divine elements but it's it's a really amazing thing that human beings are able to corral and seemingly control access to divinity in certain ways such that people are trying to get into a temple space even if around the back and i think of my own roman catholic upbringing particularly when i go to an older place um like you know not the 1970s church i went to but i go to mexico city or i go to um, the Vatican even, and you, you see the treasures that are there and people just, you know, falling all over themselves and weeping to get to touch something. And they all have a different idea in their head, maybe not as intellectual an idea about what it means to touch that statue or that gilded element or whatever it is, then the priest who's gotten, you know, the Jesuit priest who's got the PhD and what that thing means, they'll have very different understandings, but they're still attracted to that center of power. And, and I find that a very interesting thing. Having said all of this, anyone can go out and watch the sunset or sunrise, right? And feel connected to divinity. And the Egyptians did this as well and saw the birds flying at, at sunset and thought the dead are you know, having their last hurrah before they go into the, the underworld space. And 
and follow the sun on the bark of millions and all, all of these ideas are there. So um, there, the, religion is a great unifier at the same time that it's the great social divider, which is why it is so powerful. Um, Barry Kemp has a good article too. It's how religious were the ancient Egyptians that it kind of complicates all these things. So that's a good one to check out um, online. But yeah, lots of good food for thought. Okay, all the other questions I got early before um, actually all tend to deal with which animals are linked with certain gods and why. <laughs> um, so we all were apparently all on the same page with submitting questions about, you know, why do some gods have certain animal counterparts and why, you know, will you never see other ones attributing? And I think we all came to the conclusion that it's somehow in relation to the animals real life zoological characteristics that are then linked to some aspect of the god um which is interesting i'm trying to think do we have any interesting ideas about do we want to talk about any god in particular like why is almond a ram or why is hathor a cow or things like that actually i want to know why do people always still fight over anubis because half the people are like i'm 100% he's a dog. And then there's other people who are like, no, he's a jackal and I will not accept anything else. Well, Amber is living with someone who can answer that one. Um, it's true <laughs> because her husband, Eric Wells, he did his uh, dissertation on the Asiut uh, stela that are dedicated to Wepwawet. And in some of the stela, the animal or God is, sorry, in some of the stela, the God is shown as a very formal Anubis-like being, a statue, very, very strong lines. But in others, it looks like a dog. And it looks like a dog with floppy ears that kind of come down. And, and so there does seem to be a dog cult associated with, with this uh, Wepwawet uh, temple. And that maybe, Eric has suggested, there, that these dogs like went on parade when, when they had their festival days. And can you imagine, you know, you have your big yearly, maybe bi-yearly festival for Web Wallet. You let the dogs out and they're all like going on the parade route and do, are they trained? You can train dogs. How does this work? And, um, so, and, and on coffins, many of the coffins that I've worked on in particular one in the Vatican, um, come back to the Vatican, there's two sides of the coffin and one side shows these very formal Anubis figures and the other side shows the dogs with the floppy ears, long floppy ears and a, a very different look and a more informal way of walking in the scene. And so there does seem to be in terms of the cult because maybe jackals were so hard to breathe. I don't know. Um, we'd have to ask somebody like Salima Akram that question, but it seems that dogs and dog cults were a part of the the jackal cults as well. My question is, did the Egyptians distinguish between the two? Um, and was the distinction more, you know, like domesticated versus undomesticated or something like this versus actually jackal versus dog? And if they even had specific types of dogs, you know, hunting versus more, we have like little like dachshund looking ones showing up in some tomb scenes. Um, so that's my question is, did they really differentiate or was just, you know, Anubis was Anubis and um, 
you know, things like that. I, I think they did differentiate, at least in the coffin scenes, they clearly differentiated. And in the Stila that Eric worked with, they did differentiate. So it means that in the ritual moments, they would have then differentiated. And maybe a statue would have shown one thing, an idol statue, but then the, the animal and working with the animal in the temple space, it would have been, it would have been something different. Yeah. But it's yeah, a way to get to the God, right? The animal mm -hmm. is your connecting, connection. Your, your means of accessing. Yeah. Or as we were talking about in the chat, like Seth, everyone tries to nail him down with what type of animal. Is he an aardvark? Is he some type of desert creature? Like, what is it? And as Brian said, you know, Seth's not supposed to, he's an amalgamation of things. He's supposed to be this weird, you know, creature. I've even heard like giraffe, like he has parts of different animals put together and the craziest one I heard was published in Kemet like 30 years ago. And I, I, someone see if they can find this, but essentially it was a study and I don't, I don't remember the author, but it was a study of somebody who went to their local um, slaughterhouse for bulls and they took the full glands, penis, testicles, and all the bits that are connected to the reproductive system of a bull, pulled it out in, in like one piece and then they pinned it to a wall and it has these long ears and it has the snout. And it's like, I guess that was the penis. I don't know. I, 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 I still remember it in my I, mind. You read it in class. I yeah, I, I, and then I it pulls down and well. it has a fork. It has a fork at the end, this whole <laughs> thing. It looks like a wasp. And, and so this, this thing, this Seth is a giant penis head is what I'm telling my audience right now. And, and so to call somebody a dick face or whatever we might say for the Egyptians would be like, yes, but think of how Seth is treated in the contendings of Horace and Seth, the new kingdom tale. He is a dick in, but he is thinking with his penis. He's thinking like that loudish, stupid Loki like, um, or Thor like, I should say in the old sense, not in the the cute hot Chris Hemsworth sense. Um, but you know, that, that, that man thinking with his, with his dick and it's just, it's great to think of it that way that the Egyptians had a sense of humor about what it meant to over masculinize or overthink with a certain part of their body. That's my favorite theory so far. Um, Jim has actually a good question. Do we have any Egyptian animal deities coming from neighboring regions like Nubia, Syria, or Libya? And I will say Amun the Ram arguably is Nubian. Um, there's discussion that that's a Nubian. Um, he's more linked with the Ram there. And, and the snake goddess could easily be Nubian and maybe an origin. Don't We don't know. But this idea of an African savanna having a, a culture that was connected to itself. And then you get a differentiation when the Nile created agricultural kingdom of Egypt. And then the, you know, the cataracts became more important and social separators um, almost between nascent nation states. But before that, I, I think, you know, this idea of the ram um, and the snake being uh, a, a male and female divinity, that's, that's very much an African um, trope, absolutely. But then when you go to West Asia, I'm just thinking I don't know. Gets Asia a lot. She's in Sinai. The goddess of like foreign yeah. and you see like Asherah and stuff adopted into Egypt much later, but in their human 
like a lot of other cultures don't have animals associated with their deities like in west asia yeah and why egypt does and other places don't and how egypt does it's, it's really interesting question in yeah. most cases they're they're made in our image right not yeah. like they might have associated animals you know linked to them in some way but yeah there's no horse yeah. lexi <laughs> And, and speaking of animal connections to the deities, this kind of goes back to, I think, what we were talking about earlier. Sorry to flip it over. Um, why isn't there an owl god? Owls are everywhere in the script. Why isn't there an owl-headed deity? Why are there no bats in the in the text, in the hieroglyphs? You know, yeah. there's bats everywhere in Egypt and they don't draw them once and, and include them in anything. I, I find that stunning. So I... I don't know, these animals of the night in particular are, are not allowed, but then some other animals that are associated with night are. Um, you know, owls are obviously in the hieroglyphic script, um, preposition M and all kinds of things, right? But um, to me, all these things were settled much before they were building burial chambers and things like this. So um, if these connections got developed even like pre-Egypt, these ideas between certain gods being linked to the sun or moon or the Nile. And then they're just, you know, perpetuated within the culture, even once the culture's changed and developed and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's so many other bird gods. It's like why the owl gets left out. Well, they, you could argue they eventually got the owl god. When, oh, yes, Athena. When it was Hellenized and, you know, the Greeks came in technically, then they got the owl. But yeah, it's interesting. They didn't have anything of their own before then. So long mm -hmm. time. Oh, Amber, you found that Kemet. Holy moly. That's well, I found, I found the citation. I didn't find the article. Kemet articles Volume really aren't available 10. online. But still, wow. I mean, that's pretty, pretty damn quick. That's awesome. You guys should read it. It's a fun one. Very interesting. How do you get old Kemets? How do you find these things? I don't know. It's very annoying. Somebody needs to digitize the whole damn thing and they just might make it a subscription or something. Yeah. I know they shut down publication, what, beginning of this year? Or yeah. Just after the holidays? Oh, it's dead now? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't. Well, I don't think they were getting enough subscribers to like rationalize the publication. No. Maybe they should digitize it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yes. Okay. Um, any last biting questions? A couple minutes left. Anything else? Well, while we, we have you here, we could ask for, you know, topic, episode topic ideas, what you think the next live event theme could be. Um, Wait, I mentioned it somewhere way, way back. Yeah. I think it was when I was crazily writing my thesis, but now that it's done, I can bring it back up. I think I, I suggested, I would love to to see you guys do uh, an episode all on comparing the different iconoclasms because mm. I thought it would be mm. such a cool thing to compare all of them kind of together and see if there mm -hmm. were any uh, major links and stuff. So yeah. I mean, I know I'd love to see the, you know, Akhenaten period iconoclasm. Hey, that's going to be a big. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, be cool. Like, like speaking of which, have you read um, Bleiberg's uh, Striking Power? It's on iconography, uh, iconoclasm. Is it? No, I haven't read it. I, I've, I mean, I've, read on, it. I've got it on PDF, so I'll be happy to send it along. If you yeah, send please. it to me too. Me too. Yeah, abs oh, yeah. absolutely. Please oh, do. Mar I, oh, Marissa has come out. I should have asked about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And you much. have it. You have that awesome. volume. You want to show us the picture, Marissa? It's in there. 
I just saw Ed at the Met. Oh, nice. All yeah. right. What am I looking for again? <laughs> a bullet it's penis. like you're looking for a, it's, it's, it Six. looks like sad. It looks like a wasp scepter. Yeah. How long I was that? Oh, here's a good, here's a good question. I don't know the answer to this. Up oh, there you go. Yep. That's yeah. it. That's wow. it. It does look mm -hmm. like him. Hard to deny. But Seth is a dick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's also like thinking what this did. People seeing Jesus in their toast too, you know, that kind of idea. Um, Jim has a real question. How long was Otten in the Pantheon before Akhenaten elevated him to this primacy? We'll end on I that. Think, I think Middle Kingdom, yeah. yeah. Let's see. Um, is he in pyramid Middle text? Kingdom, I, I know coffin text. text. Definitely coffin text. Um, Old Kingdom, but as just, Old Kingdom. Noun, just as the noun for disc, though. Because it's not just. Hey, you, you know my opinion on this. I think yeah. this disc stuff that Egyptologists do is bullshit, and that this is a this is a sun globe. So, first, I, you know, and when they first, when Akhenaten creates the Aten, it has it is such high relief. It is it is globular. Um, they knew this thing was round, in in my humble opinion. But this is the physical sun. So when you're talking about the physical sun and not you know, Ray Harakti, this sun god, or Atum, that sun god. Um, that's what the Aten is referring to. Um, first mention of deity Aten, if we want to, like, make the distinction, is in Sinaway. Um, oh, okay. But in the okay. Old Kingdom, it's said, like, it's Ra resides in the Eten. Oh, okay. So uh, more of, like, in this, like, sun solar disk. Um, yeah, exactly. So pretty early on. And yeah, he's always around lurking. It's just mm -hmm. not until A3, T4, A3, Akhenaten, that you get him elevated to this supremacy. But you, you don't have like temples dedicated to him or anything like early on. Yeah. And, and he's still, the Aten, not he, but it is it. still around after. Mm -hmm. Because what do you, you have to talk about the sun? You can't, you know, just not have that in your vocabulary anymore. But, you know, looking at vocabulary post-Akhenaten is super interesting and I'd love to see a study on this. Like I compare it in my mind to post-Nazi Germany where certain words like even solution, you know, Erlösung became like a very difficult word to use in culture because of the final solution and other, other elements of the Nazi um, regime mm -hmm. and practice. And so when words become painful, then you have to find a workaround. And it would be a really interesting dissertation, really interesting study to see the, the the linguistic response to to Akhenaten's fanaticism and how people mm -hmm. dealt with that in language it would be really cool. Yeah. Agreed. Awesome. Well, these were all really great questions. Uh, thank you guys for stopping by on your Saturday. Um, if you, we also are open to you know doing these at different times and different days. So if you know certain days work better for you or things like this. Um, do let us know in the discord. We're, you know, happy to adjust things for, for everyone, but thank you all. I will stop. Thank you. Thank you. Recording. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms. So subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. 
Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.